please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Our focus today will be on verse 36b all the way through 50, the end of the chapter. We will be wrapping up John 12 today. It's been an interesting chapter, a challenging chapter. Last Sunday, we focused on Jesus' final public address to the Jewish people. And this is not something that I mentioned in my sermon last week because I failed to realize it or mention it. But what we looked at last week was his last public address to the Jewish people before he you know, died on a cross and these things. This was his last evangelistic message to the nation of Israel. And he literally pleads with them to believe in the light while they still had the light with them so that they could become sons of light, right? We looked at that in 27 through 36a. And this next section in John 12, the final section, it records Israel's spiritual failure. And it records Jesus's and I consider it to be a terrifying response to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. So the next section deals with Israel's kind of overall response to their Messiah and Jesus' kind of terrifying response to them. And this, that's the end of 12. And then from there on out, things move in a new direction. Let's begin at 36b through 37. 36b through 37, this is where we left off. It says, when Jesus had said these things, and he's talking about the last, John's talking about the last sermon that he preached to them, you know, come to the light and these things. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. <laughs> After preaching the gospel and performing uh, nearly countless uh, signs and wonders, miracles, before the nation of Israel, before the Jewish people for roughly three years, the Jewish people, the nation as a whole, not every Jew, but as a whole, the majority, the strong majority, the masses, they still did not believe in Jesus as their Messiah. They still rejected him. After three years of intensive preaching and countless signs and wonders, healings and feeding thousands of people and these things, the, the hypothesis, the final result for Israel is they still don't, do not believe. They're still rejecting him. It just, it's incredible. And, and the Lord's response to their perpetual unbelief and continued rejection of him is captured in 36b and in 44 through 50. So his response is kind of twofold and it takes place in those verses. And the first thing he did here is that he departs and hides himself from them. This is kind of his physical response to the rejection and their unbelief. He leaves them. And this was not a, a literal hiding. We don't want to Think of it that he left and went and hid himself in a, in a cave or in the upper room 
or something like that. He did not go and literally hide himself. It was not a literal hiding. It means that his public ministry to them was over. There's no return from this point on. He's not going to go out into the temple and and preach the gospel and invite them to accept and believe in the light anymore. That's it. It's done. He's done preaching to them. It's over. And his public ministry is, is complete. With that last section, that's it. And previously, Jesus had warned the people to repent and come to him for salvation while his public ministry was still going because after it ends... They would not have access to him. He had warned them many, many times, my, my time is coming to an end, my ministry is coming to an end, you need to, to believe in the light, you need to believe in me as Messiah now. Listen to some of these warnings in John, John eight thirty one. he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin, where I'm going you cannot come. That is a reference to, to the fact that his ministry is going to end and he's going to depart from them and he will not be found in public places, not like he was. In John 12, 35, he said, walk in the light and believe in the light while the light is still among you, while I'm still here, while you still have an opportunity, while I am physically in your presence, receive and believe in me. Matthew 23, 39, he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you will not see me again once, I, once my ministry is finished and once I actually leave, you won't see me again until the second advent, until I return. So he gave them warnings. And we tend to think of these warnings as, look, if we die, breathe our last breath and die, then we, then we won't see him in a literal sense anymore and we'll be longing for him in hell or whatever and we'll never see him again and we're going to suffer. Well, that's absolutely true in a sense, but... He's talking about, I'm going to physically leave you. You need to believe in me while I'm here in your face. Don't wait. Don't keep putting it off. These are the warnings he issued. And now that he's preached his final message to them in 36b, he departed and hid himself from them. They didn't have the access to him that they had before. It doesn't mean that they won't see him again because they're going to be yelling to kill him in a day or two but they didn't have the same kind of access to him. They could not find him in the temple teaching the people as he was. That's over. It's done. In other words, you had your shot. It's over. MacArthur says the light went out. It's a terrifying thought that, that the Lord is there in grace, inviting and inviting and commanding and persistent, consistent rejection, and then that's it. His patience runs out, and he leaves. And now you don't have access to him. And all these warnings. He departed and hid himself literally signifies the end of Jesus' public ministry and the moment the light went out for Israel. And guess what? That light's still out not coming back on until he comes back. MacArthur put it like this, the sun of opportunity had set. God's patience was at an end, and Jesus' solemn warnings were about to be realized. Verse 36b should, should terrify people. It, it shows us that the patience of God is mutable, changing, 
Not forever, not immutable. God's patience with humanity is not immutable, unchanging. It is mutable. It changes. In other words, his patience with sinners can run out and will eventually run out. We are totally living in the dispensation of grace right now, but but God can and still does run out of patience with people. Ananias and Sapphira, there's just countless examples. And we might be living in the dispensation of grace where the gospel's going out and all this great stuff, but but God is, is still in the business. You know, people think that God, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods or God behaves differently in the New Testament. It's not the same. It's not true. God is the same always. He never changes. And God is, is still in the business of doing what he did in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in this dispensation of grace. He's still in the business of doing to people what he did to Pharaoh, hardening the heart to the point of no return, those who harden themselves against God. In other words, if somebody rejects Jesus, God, and they're hardening their heart against, against Christ, God can do the same thing back to them and seal them in that hardening. MacArthur, again, it is a sobering reality that those who persistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by Him. Well, that's not the God that I know of. He's a God of love. He would never harden anyone's hearts. Really? He's certainly a God of love, but He's also a God of justice and a God of mutable patience. He says the historical record of God's dealings with Pharaoh illustrates that principle noting ten times that Pharaoh hardened his heart and ten times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Every time Pharaoh hardened his heart against God's commands, God returned hardening on him and further sealed him in that unbelief. That's a terrifying thought. What happened to Pharaoh, what happened to Israel, is a warning of what can happen to us if we continue to harden our hearts and reject the light, Jesus Christ. God doesn't have to wait until you breathe your last breath to permanently harden you and seal you in unbelief. This is a mistake when we preach this, that, boy, you better do it before you you die and breathe your last breath. No, you better do it now. There's no waiting on this situation with Jesus. There's no waiting. God doesn't have to wait until you pass away to seal you, seal your doom and send you off into eternal damnation and punishment. He can seal you and harden your heart to the point of no return while you're alive. This is why it's so important that we humble ourselves and heed God's warnings while we still have ears to hear and eyes to see. This is why Jesus preached with such urgency. Believe in the light now, for I will not be with you for long. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Lastly, verse 36b also signifies a turning point in the historical narrative. Jesus departs from the Jewish masses and devotes himself to the the building up of those who do believe, his disciples. 
Chapters 13 through 17 record the private farewell discourse where Jesus encourages and prays for His disciples just before His arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Those chapters, that's what they deal with entirely. Jesus' personal ministry to primarily the 11, because you had one that was the betrayer there. The farewell discourse, that's what 13 through 17 is known as. It has two parts. Jesus delivered the first part in the upper room, before, during, and after the Last Supper. Chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through to 1431, the end of 14. That's where we see that. He delivered the second part while he and his disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, were walking through Jerusalem on their way to Gethsemane. That's chapters 15, 1 through 17, 26. So we see a turning point in this text when he hides himself, when he departs and hides himself. Public ministry is over, in particular to the Jewish nation, and he turns his attention to his disciples to build them up and encourage them because he's about to depart. And, and 11 of them were so utterly attached to Jesus, the thought of Jesus leaving was, was incomprehensible to them. And Jesus builds them up, and we see the high priestly prayer and this ministry of Jesus to the disciples and really to the whole church as a whole if you think about it. And we're going to be looking at that, but this is the turning point. The ministry's over. You had your shot. Now let's look at 38 through 41. A little bit longer section here. It says this, So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and here it is, Lord, who has believed what, we, uh, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he says this, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then John adds this little statement in 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking of Christ, and spoke of him. Here John tells us that Israel's unbelief and rejection of their own Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the divine judicial hardening that ensued was foreseen in the Old Testament, was prophesied in the Old Testament. He cites two texts in, two texts in Isaiah 53, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 5. 53, verse 1 talks about God extending the arm of His salvation, the gospel, to Israel. Uh, but the nation, Israel, as a whole, refuses to listen and believe so this was prophesied, the, the, the Israelites' response, the Jewish response to Jesus was prophesied. God knew all about it. Isaiah 6, 5 talks about God's judgment coming upon Israel in the form of judicial hardening. You harden against me, I harden you. And this rejection and, and judicial hardening that we see in these two texts in Isaiah was not merely foreseen, it was by God's design. It was part of God's plan. And this is a difficult thing for me to get my mind around, that God actually planned for them not to believe. And I don't think He had to do a thing to them to cause them not to believe, because that was their natural disposition and attitude. But He planned to use their unbelief for His purposes. And Isaiah seems to infer or imply that He caused it. And this is something that 
that I grapple with that's difficult to get my mind around, but God did create all things, and he can do whatever he wants with his creation whenever he wants, whether we think it's fair or right or whatever. But in his sovereign grace, God brought good out of this foreseen hardening and this reality of hardening and unbelief in these things. He's totally brought good out of it. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans eleven twenty five. he is saying to the Romans, Roman believers here, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery of salvation, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and here's the purpose for it, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's the good that God brings through their unbelief. Israel rejects Jesus, God hardens Israel, thus ensuring that its spiritual position will not change until the appointed time, so that, what, a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, can be, what, grafted in, brought into the fold of God, Romans 11, 11 through 24. In other words, Israel rejects Jesus, God hardens Israel and puts her aside, so Gentiles, you and me, can be saved. You see the good that he brings through their unbelief and the hardening? It's a mystery how God planned to use all of this, caused these things. I I, I can't get my mind around it. And this is why Paul refers to this facet of salvation, this mysterious part of it. He literally calls it the mystery. The mystery in how God takes the un- plans all these things and uses these her- this horrific response to Jesus and even the death of Jesus to accomplish his wonderful purposes for people. It's just astonishing how God can do this and how he does do it. This is also why the Apostle Paul closed chapter 11 with statements like this. Oh, the, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Even the Apostle Paul was baffled by how God could ordain the unbelief and the hardening and use it all. It is a baffling thing, but it's perfectly worked out in the mind of God. This is not to say that no Jews will be saved between the end of Jesus' ministry and his second coming. We'd be mistaken to think that or to say that. Paul calls it a partial hardening, not a full hardening. God has a remnant of Jews. God has a remnant in Israel. He always has had a remnant in Israel, a small collection of real, devout people who love Him. What did God tell the Old Testament prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19.18? And Elijah was despairing and totally terrified over that, that Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel. She wanted to kill him, and he ran off into the wilderness, and he was freaking out. He turned into a big sissy lala, and it's amazing because this guy was like calling down fireballs on, on false prophets not too long ago. And here he's freaking out and wigging out, and he runs off into the wilderness. And he says, I'm the only believer left on the face of the earth. And God says, no, I've got 7,000 in Israel, who have never bowed their knees to those idols, Baal. There's the remnant, 7,001, including Elijah. In the New Testament, the remnant can be seen in passages like Acts 2.41, where what? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews were saved 
and baptized, right? Who are those Jews that God saved on the day of Pentecost? They are remnant Jews, a small group that God takes out of the nation itself, out of the totality of those people, and he sets apart for himself. They're saved. They belong to him. They are the remnant. He's always had a remnant of Jews, always. So this is not a full hardening that excludes all Jewish people. (laughs) The, The apostles were Jewish The Apostle Paul was Jewish. He didn't get saved till after Pentecost. God still saves Jews, but for the most part, as a whole, they've been set aside. They're under God's disciplinary hand right now. They're in judgment. And that sermon that Jesus preached was it. That was it for them, the thing that we looked at last week. From that point on. Notice John's statement in verse 41. He said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Here, John ties Isaiah's prophetic writings directly to Jesus. It is Jesus whom Isaiah saw and heard in his temple vision in Isaiah 6. You ever read the story there where... You know, King Uzziah dies in the year of his death. This great king dies, and now now they've got no leadership in place. And Isaiah gets this vision, and he sees into the temple of the Lord, and the Lord descends down into the temple, and the whole building shakes, and you can see the train of his glory. It's just this amazing imagery. And Isaiah is struck with this sense of impurity and sin, and he starts to confess, and, and he's just terrified by what he sees. Have you ever thought about who Isaiah and, and who um, Isaiah was actually looking upon at that moment? John tells us right here, he was looking at Jesus. He was seeing Jesus. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, right? That's the Lord Jesus sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, those are angels. Each had six wings with two uh, that they covered their faces with and two that they covered their feet with. And, they, and the two they flew over, they were hovering over the Lord Jesus in this grand vision. This is Jesus that Isaiah saw. Spectacular. It is... Jesus who decreed to uh, judicially harden Israel. That's that's Jesus that's saying this in Isaiah. Isaiah gets gets the prophetic word from God. It's Jesus giving it to him. Right? What was the the judicial hardening that was, was prophesied there in Isaiah? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart, this is in chapter 6, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's in verses 9 and 10. These are the words of Jesus. Isaiah sees Jesus and Jesus utters these words to Isaiah. This is what I want you to do when you go out to the people. Harden them. They're hardened, but continue to harden them with my prophetic word. It is Jesus who posed the rhetorical questions of Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom? You know, the, to whom is? It's to Israel. 
The arm of the Lord is the message of salvation. It's the gospel. It was, it was extended and given to Israel. And then the, and then the rhetorical question is, but, but who has believed this message? Who has received the arm of the Lord? Very few is the answer. Very few. Because we see in this text, Israel pretty much rejects the Messiah. Why is John... Why did John say what he said here in verse 41? He wants his readers to know that when Israel rejected Jesus, it did not reject a charlatan because this is what they were saying. It did not reject a false Messiah because this is what they said later on. This is what they teach their children today. Do not, little Jimmy, do not believe in Jesus. He was the worst thing to ever happen to Israel. This is what they teach them from birth today, the Jews. John wants his readers to know that when they rejected Jesus, they rejected the true author of Isaiah, the promised Messiah that Isaiah wrote about, the Christ. Because the first thing the Jews would do is they would claim these things about Jesus. Well, he wasn't really our Messiah, and we have the Old Testament to prove it. No, he was speaking to you people in the Old Testament. He was speaking to you in the New Testament, but you reject him. You reject him here in the New Testament, you're rejecting him there too, even though you say you claim that you believe. John's giving them no loophole here. He wants the readers to know they rejected Jesus, they rejected, they reject the Old Testament. And this will come into play in a little bit here. Look at 42 through 43. John says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Here John juxtaposes the widespread cataclysmic unbelief he mentions in verse 37 with a small group of authorities, members of the Sanhedrin, you know, religious leaders, who believed in Jesus. It's almost like a compare and contrast. You had all of these people, the masses rejecting him, but there was a small band, a small group of leaders out of the Sanhedrin that, that believed in him. But the problem is, the trouble with these authorities is they were afraid to confess their faith. They were afraid to confess their allegiance to Jesus because the penalty for doing so was what? Excommunication, excommunicato, removal from the synagogue. They'd be kicked out of the synagogue. They'd be kicked out of the religious life of Israel and the social life of Israel. They would become social misfits. And the trouble is they were more, these little group of religious leaders were more concerned about maintaining their reputations, more concerned about maintaining their social status, their own personal glory, more concerned about those things than about the cause of Christ and the glory that comes from God. These men were not being obedient to Jesus' clear teachings and clear instructions to those who desire to become true disciples. Right here in this very text, verses 25 through 26, the whole dying to self deal was not on their agenda. Now, you're not dying to yourself if you're trying to preserve yourself and your reputation and your social status by keeping your lips shut about Jesus. That's not dying to self. That's dying to Christ. <laughs> it's like, I don't want anyone to know about that part, facet of my life because it's going to bring me trouble. That's the opposite of dying to self. MacArthur, again, he, he says that, that they possessed 
nothing more than, he's speaking of these authorities, they possess nothing more than superficial religion and that their, their faith was inadequate, um, irresolute, and spurious. And Gerald Borchet describes those who are unwilling to confess openly their attachment to Jesus because of all sorts of pressure, borderline believers. That's an interesting title. Like they're kind of on the edge. They're not quite there. Something's wrong because they're ashamed or they're worried about the consequence of following Jesus. And so they're, they're not real believers. They kind of are, but they're kind of on the edge. They're right on the border there. That's what he's saying. MacArthur just doesn't believe they were believers at all. Question becomes, were these authorities genuine believers? Well, we don't know for sure. And I certainly don't want to make excuses for them or try to justify what they're doing. I tend to think they were genuine believers because John describes them as believing. But I think they were afraid to make it known because they did live in a hostile environment. I'm not trying to make up excuses for them, but if you were found to be following Jesus, a disciple, or believing in Jesus, the, the consequence was very harsh then. The excommunication was a disaster for you. You, you would lose everything. It was a difficult environment. I, I can kind of, it kind of resonates with me. And we don't experience the same kind of backlash here. And I don't know if it was uh, as, as, as terrible as it would be in Iran, where you're just incarcerated. Probably. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. Before he becomes the Apostle Paul, he saw he killed Christians. You get an idea of the level of persecution that they suffered through back then. A couple of centuries later, they're getting turned into human candles. So I can kind of understand how they would keep it under wraps, but the thing that catches me here is the idea of them loving their own glory. That's what John says. And that's like kind of just like, okay, well, that just sounds like unbelief to me. But I suspect that they were real believers. And they had issues. They just, you know, they were immature. They were afraid. Maybe they lacked power, you know, to, to be faithful witnesses. And you've got to remember, this is all pre-Pentecost. Jesus is still alive. He hasn't even died on the cross at this juncture. They don't have the Holy Spirit. I, don't think, I think they had the Spirit in a sense, but they didn't have the Spirit in the way that they would post-Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down and brings power. And, and have you ever read Acts 1.8? It says, when the Spirit comes, He will come upon you, and you will have power to be my witnesses. In other words... We're not going to be good, faithful witnesses and give good testimony unless we have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers our witnessing, makes us bold, makes us defy death at times. And I don't think these guys had the Spirit in the same way that they would post-Pentecost. I don't know how the Old Testament saints had the, the Holy Spirit. Some say they had the Spirit just as we do. Maybe they did. I don't know. But again, I don't want to make up excuses for them, but it was a harsh environment. They were obviously immature. They hadn't been believers for long, less than three years, probably way less than that. It was pre-Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had not come yet in the way that he did, as described in Acts 1.8. Do you know who I think that uh, John was referring to here? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were authorities who believed in Jesus and tried to keep it a secret. And we immediately give them a free pass because of their dealings with 
Christ's burial and these things, and they got the body and helped to prepare the body and all that. And we say that, well, look, at that's a sign of boldness, and they're, they're putting it right out there. Not necessarily hold your horses. Have you ever read John 19, 38 through 39? It says, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews... This was written how many years after Jesus ascended? John wrote his gospel in what, 90? 85 AD? Joseph of Arimathea, this is the man that, that donated his tomb for Jesus and these things. He did some extraordinary things. He even went to Pilate and asked that he could get Jesus' body. He wanted to get Jesus' body so he could put it in his tomb. These are, this is, this is, these are great expressions. These are, these are good things that he did. I'm not trying to disqualify what he did here. But at the same time that he's doing these things, it says, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And going to Pilate's no big deal because Pilate's not going to sound the alarm on you. He's Roman. He doesn't give a crud. Going to the Sanhedrin to get authority to get Jesus' body, that's a red flag and that'll get you thrown in jail. He didn't go to the Sanhedrin to do it. He went to Pilate, who doesn't care. We want to be careful here not to give Joseph of Arimathea too, too much credit. But secretly for fear of the Jews. What did John just say? John just told us that there were authorities who kept it a secret, who did not testify. He's describing this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and I believe he's describing Nicodemus also. And one of the signs that we see here, listen, listen to the, the rest of the narrative here. It says, Nicodemus also, right, he came with Joseph of Arimathea, who had earlier, who had earlier come to Jesus by night. Jesus' first interaction with Nicodemus was done at night because Nicodemus didn't want to be seen talking to him. You think he got over that? issue in 24 hours? No, I bet you he was a believer and he kept it a secret the whole time Jesus was walking around doing ministry. I believe that when John writes that about the authorities, that's who he's talking about, those two men. Do I think they were real believers? Yes. But I think they were immature and I think they were terrified of the consequence. And they probably outgrew that shortly after, the, after Jesus went, certainly post-Pentecost, because now they held the Holy Spirit in a way like never before. Now they had the boldness to take the gospel to the nations. But I think that's who he's talking about. Some scholars call the rest of chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, a summary of Jesus' ministry that he gave at some point during the Passion Week, you know, his last week on earth. Now, it, the text, the rest of the text in 12, it does look like a summary. It has the, the marks of a summary, but I'm not convinced that that was Jesus' intention, that at some point during the week, he just blurted out and cried out in a loud voice, here's a summary of my ministry. I came to save the world and these sorts of things. That just does not fit anywhere as far as I'm concerned. I don't think it's a summary at all, or at least that's the intention the placement of it here at the end of chapter 12 creates great difficulty for this theory. What has John been presenting? What is our context? He's been presenting Israel's unbelief. That's what he's talked about. Here's the cataclysmic failure of all Israel minus a tiny remnant that rejected Jesus. That's what he just told us. And he also points to what? Two prophecies, Old Testament prophecies that pertain to this rejection and the judicial hardening that followed. 
And he even highlights the unfaithfulness of some authorities who allegedly believed, right? If I were to summarize what we've looked at so far, 36b through 43, or boil it down into a single word, it would be unbelief. The context is unbelief. So why are we getting a summary of Jesus' ministry at the end here? This is why a summary view doesn't make sense to me. The context for the rest of chapter 12 is unbelief, cataclysmic, total rejection. Since verses 27 through 36a represent Jesus' final evangelistic message to Israel, and since 36b through 42 represent Israel's negative spiritual response to his final evangelistic message and ministry as a whole, they did not believe, it is befitting that Jesus would present during the same week, which is his final week, a final warning to those who reject him. That's what the rest of 12 is. It is a warning. Israel responds to me like this. Here is my final warning to Israel and to all who reject me. I believe that's what we're seeing here at the end of 12. Some Bibles feature section titles. You know, the little heading above a set of paragraphs, right? Just above this section, this final set of verses in chapter 12 in my ESV, it, it says, Jesus came to save the world. <laughs> when I read that, I thought, who wrote that into there? What bozo put that there? Because it wasn't the original authors. It was somebody who added it several hundred years ago as a help aid to Christians as they study the Word. Have you ever been reading the Word and read a text and then read the section title above it and said, I don't understand how that section title has anything to do with this text? You ever done that? I have, plenty of times. I look back up and go, what? It's almost as if they write them in and they don't understand the context of what's going on. I'm not saying there's a fallacy or error in the Word. Those things are not part of the Word. They're little headings that are put in there by someone to help aid us as we study. They're not Scripture. These section titles were added way later. And some are helpful. And some aren't. And this one here is not helpful. In fact, it's downright misleading. Because of the nature of it, if you look at it again, Jesus came to save the world, it completely neuters the idea of a very important warning here. Just kills it, gets rid of it. This section is not about how Jesus came to save the world. We, we know that he did that. We don't need the section titles to tell us that. Read John 3. Read 3.16. It's not about Jesus came to save the world. It is a final warning to Israel and to all who reject him. It is a five-fold warning, five-folds, five points, a five-point warning. And I'm going to present it to you in the form of a five-fold reality check or five reality checks. In other words, if you reject Jesus, I'm going to give you, you know, if you're a rejecter of Jesus, here's five reality checks for the person who rejects Jesus. 
This is your reality. These are your reality checks. You reject him, here's a reality check. Here's a reality check. Okay? Reality check number one. If we reject Jesus, we do not know God. Verses 44 through 45. And you're thinking, why on earth would Jesus stress and emphasize that? Or why would Pastor Phil make a big deal about that? Because there are countless people in the world who reject Jesus who think they know God. Well, I'm very spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. Okay. Define that. Well, I think God is in everything. They're pantheistic, right? God is in the rocks and everything. I'm stepping on God. Oh, my gosh. What am I doing? I keep, I'm running on him. Ah, what do I do? There, I'm not on him. Oh, he's in the stool. You know? It's insanity. I'm, I'm very spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. And, and I, it, Jesus gives this warning, this reality check, because think of the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset is we know the Old Testament. We love God. We are loved by God. We are covenant people, right? That's the Jewish mindset. We don't need Jesus to know God. In fact, we think he's trying to lead us away from God. That's their perspective. That's their disposition. That's their mentality, right? And Jesus clearly says here, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but the Father who sent me. In other words, if you believe in me, you know the Father and you believe in the Father. But if you reject me, you do not know God. This is such a key truth for Jews back in this day and for us today. I don't care how spiritual, spiritual you are. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how good you are at, at minding and obeying the rules and doing what you do. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you reject him, you don't know God. You don't know God. You think you know God, but you don't know God. Jesus made it so clear. Over and over and over, he preached this truth. If you see me, you see the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me. He preached this more than almost anything else. Later on, one of his disciples says, hey, show us the Father. Are you kidding me? I've been showing him to you for three years. You're talking to him. Tom Foolery. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in, in him who sent me. And listen to what he says. And this is verse 45. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. In other words, if you reject me, you don't know God. You do not have a relationship with God. Doesn't matter how spiritual you are. Doesn't matter how religious you are. Doesn't matter how good you are at following the rules. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. You don't know God. You blow yourself up. In some cults, doesn't matter. You don't know God. Your piety will not determine whether you know God or not. Your religiosity will not determine it. The only way to know the Father is to know the Son. If we know the Son by grace through faith, we know the Father. Who is the Son? The Son is the exact imprint of His very nature. He is God in flesh. If we know the Son, we know the Father. And we know the Spirit. This is a reality check that people need to hear today because they're so spiritual. And I'm just so religious. Doesn't matter. You reject Jesus. You better believe in the correct Jesus, too. Oh, I know Jesus. Oh, really? Yeah, I know Jesus. He's not God. 
don't know God, pal, because Jesus is God. Oh, I, I know Jesus, and I know that, that salvation consists of some of His grace and a whole lot of my effort. Guess what? You don't know Jesus. You don't know God. Because it doesn't depend on you. You have no righteousness of your own. You've got to be fully reliant and dependent on the righteousness, that alien righteousness that Christ alone provides, because only He was perfect and could earn it for you. You can't earn anything with God. And if you think it's about your earning, you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. There can't be a speck of earning involved in our salvation. We've got to just jettison that whole concept and idea and stop trying to earn our way with Him and put our faith entirely in the Christ who is perfect, who has our righteousness, everything, our justification, it's all in Him. We believe in Him and we receive all that He is and all that He accomplished for us. And we know God, we know the Father, and we have the Spirit in us. That's a reality check. Well, I'm spiritual. Well, I don't care how spiritual you are. You might be 10 times more religious than me. Good for you. Do you know Jesus? No, I don't. I'm very religious. I do a lot of things. Good for you. Do you know Jesus? No, I don't. You know what your religion is? You know what your good deeds are? Isaiah says they're filthy rags because anything done outside of faith in Jesus is sin. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus would say something like this? Eh, we've got a bunch of religious people here. They need to know that rejecting me means you do not know God. And I know you keep saying you do. And I know, I know, Fred, I know your position. I've heard about you. You talk about Yahweh all day. You don't know him. You'll never know him. You'll know his wrath. That's what you'll know. You'll come to know him, but not in the way you want. That's reality check one. Reality check two, if we reject Jesus, we are in darkness or spiritual darkness. Verse 46, so many people, they're so religious and so spiritual, they think that they have light and they think that they have light in them and they believe they're walking in light. And yet you reject Jesus, you're in darkness. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. The only way to be in the light is to be in darkness. Jesus, by grace through faith. That's the only way to enter into light, into true, pure, spiritual light. The only way is in Jesus because he is the light of the world. And, and I'll tell you, it has to do with having your mind illuminated in these sorts of things and being totally aware and cognizant of the reality of God and the reality of truth and purity in these things. People think they can obtain it apart from Jesus. It is impossible to obtain it apart from the light of the world. We reject Jesus, we are in darkness, fallacy, error. He puts it like this, I have come into the world as light, so, whoever, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He came to draw men out of the, preaching the gospel to draw men out of the darkness into himself by grace through faith so that they could walk in light and become sons of light. Such an imperative, important truth. This is a reality check. If you reject Jesus, you are in darkness. Again, it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how, you know, uh, how good you are at this or that or showing up to church and doing all these things. It doesn't matter. You're in darkness darkness. And I bet if we were to put a microscope over your life, we'd see darkness all over it because of your activities and things you're engaging in when you're not here. You are in darkness, my friend. 
You think you're in light. You think you know truth. You think that your mind and your heart have been illuminated. They're not. They're in spiritual darkness. You are in the realm, the darkened realm of Satan. And the Jew, again, we're in the light. We're the people of light. Kill him. You're not in the light. You, want, you kill your Messiah. You're not in light. The only way to be in the light is to come to the light and enter into the light by grace through faith. Anyone outside of Jesus is in darkness, no matter how spiritual or anything they are. Reality check three, and this is just one that, that man, it was just new for me. I never thought about this before. So cool. If we reject Jesus, we will be judged by the gospel. You ever thought about that? This is in 47 and 48. He says, if anyone hears my words, he's speaking of the gospel and does not keep them. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, no doubt. And that's where they probably got the chapter title from, or the section title. And he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, that's the gospel. And he says, the person who does that has a judge. And who is the judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. When we think of the gospel, what do we think of? Good news. Do we understand that it is also the hammer of God's judgment? The same message has the power to save and damn for all eternity. The difference is what you do with it. If you believe it, you're saved. If you reject it, it's going to blast you on top of the head like the heaviest hammer ever known to mankind on Judgment Day. And it's going to usher you and send you right into hell. We will be judged if we reject Jesus, we will not be saved by the word Jesus spoke the gospel. We will be judged by that very gospel. The gospel is good news. It is. But it is also the hammer of God's judgment on the unbelievers. And these people think that, no, we don't have to. You know, I like some of Jesus' teachings, but I don't like the whole idea of, of the death, burial, and resurrection and all this. What's this nonsense? You reject Jesus, you reject His Word, the Gospel, so on the day of judgment, Jesus' Word, the Gospel will be your judge. You remember when I preached before you my death, my burial, my resurrection, and that that was the only way to be saved, the only way to know the Father? You had to come to me my faith. You remember that? Well, yeah, I remember. I heard it my whole life. I just wasn't interested in it. Bam! Judgment, that message is your judge. Receive your punishment. That's a reality check. The gospel is good news, but it is also the hammer fall of God's judgment. Better believe the gospel. Better believe in Jesus, the one who proclaimed the gospel. Reality check four, if we reject Jesus, we are being disobedient to the command of God. We see this in verse 49. Have you ever even considered or thought about the gospel being a commandment from God? We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Don't do this, don't do that. We get it. There's a lot of commandments in this scripture. Jesus gave commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, love your neighbor as yourself, right? There's commandments. Have you ever thought about, ever considered that the gospel message itself is a commandment not to be considered but to be obeyed? 
Have you ever thought about the fact that when we preach the gospel, we're always inviting people to believe, but do you know how God intends to present the gospel? He commands that people believe the gospel. It's not, well, it's a good idea. You might want to come to Jesus. He's telling people, come to Jesus or else. Believe the gospel or else. The gospel is a commandment by God, issued from God. Think of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, add an 11th to it. Believe the gospel. It is commanded. It says in the book of Acts, God is commanding men everywhere to come to Jesus. It is a commandment. Not an option, not a good idea, not a mere invitation. God is commanding men everywhere, believe, believe, believe the gospel. I command you to believe the gospel. You ever thought about that? No, we don't think of it that way at all, do we? And when we reject Jesus' message and when we reject the gospel, we are being disobedient to the commandment of God. And what is the punishment for disobeying any of his commandments? Hell. He says, for I have not spoken, this is verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given a commandment what to say and what to speak. In other words, when Jesus was sent by the Father, the Father gave Jesus the commandment to give to men. And what is that commandment? The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe in that message. Believe in the Messiah who proclaims it. I command you to do so. I'm not going to try to woo you over to it. Do it or else. We don't think of the gospel as a commandment. And it is a commandment that will also be our judge if we reject that message. And guys in the, in the past who have preached very, the gospel very forth, forcefully, not forthfully, forcefully and very passionately have always gotten a bad rap. God himself considers the gospel a commandment to be believed, not to be considered, not to be massaged for a while. You know, and I'll think about it, I'll add it to my plate of options. It's a commandment, and God demands that we obey it. And it goes out, yeah, we have the elect, we, we understand this, but it goes out to everyone. I don't know who the elect is. It goes out to everyone, and it's a commandment right here. It's a shotgun blast commandment. If you're here today, God commands that you believe the gospel right here. Everyone in this room, God is commanding you in the back to believe the gospel. Now, it's a good idea. Come, come to Jesus. Believe it. And these people did not... We obey all the commandments. Look at the interactions that Jesus had with individuals, the rich young ruler. Well, here's some commandments. If you obey these things, it's a good thing. And this guy has the audacity to say to Jesus, I've obeyed them all since I was a youth. You know, the Jews were big on obeying the commandments of God. It was Their entire life revolved around the Mosaic law and obeying all the commandments. That's all they prided themselves on. That's all they did. And Jesus says, hey, there's a commandment you're failing to obey. It's called the gospel. And you all know what happens when you disobey God's commandment. Yeah, we go to hell. You're not obeying this commandment. Reality check five. If we reject Jesus, we will not receive eternal life. Period. 
verse 50. Listen to what he says. And I know that his commandment, he's again referencing the commandment that he was given, right? The gospel. He says, and I know that the father's, it's his, but it's the father he's speaking of. His commandment is what? Eternal life. What is the commandment that God gave to Jesus? It's the message of the gospel and it brings eternal life or it brings the hammer blow of God's judgment. He says, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, as I say, as the father has told me. Basically, I am telling you the father's message. It is a commandment and it is a commandment unto eternal life. If you reject me, you reject his commandment, you reject eternal life. Well, I'm going to be saved by my works. Ah, no. You're either going to be saved by Jesus' work, his finished work, or you're not going to be saved. It's not a two-way street. No one is saved by their works. We're only saved by the work of Christ and by believing in the work that he accomplished for us and believing in him, the one who accomplished it. That's the only way that we're going to be saved. We must obey the commandment, the gospel that Jesus preached. These people rejected him and that message, it was cataclysmic. The entire nation, just a handful of people, believed. How tragic. We never consider this, but hell is full of Jews. Full of them. And it's full of Gentiles. We don't need to be concerned about the Jews. We need to be concerned about ourselves. Do we believe? Do we believe the commandment? Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe in his life, death, burial, and resurrection? Do we believe in him? Are we trusting in his work? Are we relying on his work, on him himself? If that's the case, we have received eternal life and Nothing can take it away from us. Nothing can snatch it from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Read the end of Romans 8. Our eternal security is secured. Why? Because it's all wrought by God. God accomplished it for us. If it was up to us, we would lose it. Closing. If we have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do we not realize that this can result in divine judicial hardening even to the point of no return? Or do we think that we can escape what happened to Israel? And Israel will return at the appointed time, but right now it's not. Pharaoh died in his sin. Are we so naive or so prideful that we do not think, that we, we believe that we can just continue to reject Jesus and not have happened to us what happened to Pharaoh and what happened to Israel 2,000 years ago? We can easily become like Pharaoh, or like many of the people Jesus warned, many of the Jews, and die in our sins, eternally separated from the goodness, grace, and mercy of God in hell, a place of torment and punishment designed for the, designed for the devil and demons. The warnings we see in this text are our warnings. They are universal, friends. 
we do not believe in Jesus, we do not know God. And it doesn't matter how religious we are or how spiritual we think we are or how good we are at doing this or that or obeying the rules. None of it matters. It doesn't mean anything. We don't know God. Countless people spend their whole lives in religion doing all of this stuff for God and they don't even know Him. And when they first get to know Him, it'll be in judgment. We are in spiritual darkness. If we reject Jesus, these things are true of us. These reality checks are our reality checks. We are in spiritual darkness. We're walking in darkness. We will eventually be judged by the gospel. We are disobedient to God's commandment, and we will not receive eternal life, but eternal death, eternal separation from the good side of God. If we have repented and believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the opposite is true. We know God. We are in light. We will not be judged by the gospel. We've been saved by it. We are not in disobedience to God's command to believe the gospel, right? And we have, without a doubt, received eternal life. We need to give glory to God because He is the one who sovereignly granted us repentance and graced us with faith so that we could experience these blessings that we're talking about here especially eternal life, salvation. If it weren't for Him, we would be lost. But we need to be careful not to become like the believing authorities who did not confess their faith, did not make their allegiance to Jesus known because of the fear of man and the desire to self-preserve. I said it before and I'll say it again. Christianity is a throwaway life. If we aren't willing to throw away our lives for the sake of Christ, if we are not willing to bear our own crosses and die to ourselves, we are not fit to be His disciples. What is the Holy Spirit leading you to do this morning? What is He making you aware of? Is He leading you to repent and believe the gospel for the first time? Do it. Turn from your rebellion and disobedience and put your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Believe that He lived a perfect life to earn your righteous standing before God so that you could be justified. Believe that He died on a cross to pay for your sins and bear your punishment, the wrath of God against you. He bore it for you. Believe that He was buried in a tomb to settle your account. Believe that He rose three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. If you do this, you will receive eternal life. You will be saved. And your next step will be to begin to live for Jesus in the context of a local church. And since you're here, it may as well be this one. And I'd suggest that you get baptized. It's a testimony. As a testimony. And I can help you with that. You can talk to me after. What else is the Holy Spirit leading us to do? Is He leading us to, to become less fearful and more evangelistic? Is He leading us to die to certain areas in our lives so that the pattern of a true disciple will be exemplified in and through us? Is He leading us to become more grateful and thankful to God because of what He's done for us and is doing for us? Do we realize what we have escaped? (laughs) 
during communion, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in the right direction, to point out to you what you need to focus on and deal with. If He convicts you of sin, confess it. And remember what the bread and juice represent, His broken body and the shed blood, His own blood poured out for our forgiveness. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you overcome any obstacles you have in your life, any behavioral issues that distract you from the church's mission. Are you living on mission? We can't say that of those early authorities who believed. They did something great for Jesus when Jesus died, but they also hid their faith because of fear. You can't live on mission if you're living in fear. Why are you afraid of man? Who cares? What can they do to you? Get on mission. Make sure that you give thanks to God for His goodness and grace. And lastly, remember that communion is for believers only. Only for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Those who have the Spirit. Those who are living for Jesus. Believers. Genuine believers. It's only for believers. So if you have not yet believed in Jesus, just, we're glad you're here, but just sit this one out. Let God's people go and worship Him through this act. And we'll come back together in a few moments for a song, okay? Help yourselves. <laughs>